0: Hello and welcome to our University of Strathclyde podcast series run out of the world famous School of Education, right in the heart of the beautiful city of Glasgow in Scotland. We bring you a mix of meeting academic interviews, thought pieces, conversations and provocations on all things education. To give you a glimpse into our world leading education research here at Strathclyde and of course to stimulate your questions and thinking around the meaning, purpose and practice of education in schools, in communities, and of course in all our lives. Hello and welcome to the School of Education podcast. Today I am delighted to welcome Professor Aileen Kennedy from the School of Education and she's going to provide the next in our mini-lecture series. Today she's going to be talking about teaching for a better world. Aileen, over to you. Thank you.
1: Teaching for a better world. I think you're probably all saying that's a little bit twee. I'm hoping by the end of this that you, you actually are with me. Um, my research and knowledge exchange efforts over very many years now are motivated by a belief that teaching and teacher education have a key role to play in making the world a better place. I fundamentally do believe that it's socially and politically important work. And I want to talk through some of the influential research that I've been exposed to, some of the research I've been engaged in, and how this has translated into teaching and knowledge exchange activities. So I'm really interested in teacher education policy and pedagogy with a particular focus on how teacher education can work for greater social good. And my work stems from experiences as a primary teacher, as a professional officer with the General Teaching Council, and as a teacher education academic who has retained and developed connections with policymakers. And I think probably it's reasonable to be honest and say that my work is also influenced by my own son um, and the fact that what, what I do as a teacher educator matters because I can see the impact of teaching on my own son. And I firmly believe that if it's not good enough for my boy, it is really not good enough for anybody's child. So I'm deeply motivated in that way. However, it's not just me who thinks that teacher education is a route to a better world. There's a very strong um, global meta-narrative that tells us that teachers matter. Indeed, that was the the title of uh, an influential OECD report in 2005. That really was one of the big markers of the start of this um, meta-narrative, which tells us that if, as nation states, we want to improve our lot, our outcomes, our economic performance, then we need to be improving the quality of our teachers. Now that might sound uncontroversial, but this move towards using the, the universal rather than the particular information to inform the development of teacher education policy I think has become quite quite complex, so most policymakers are happy to accept that if we improve the quality of our teachers, we improve outcomes um, in terms of pupil attainment and therefore uh, national economic performance. But routes to improving teacher education do vary across the globe. And this just illustrates the, the whole range of underpinning ideological positions about the purpose of education and indeed about the role of governments in leading, dictating, or influencing teacher education. So there have been some um, arguably simplistic solutions that have been suggested by these um, very often global analyses of policy in countries that are seen to be high performing. An example of that would be the identification of professional standards as a route to improvement and indeed some of the work I've been engaged in over quite a long while now is the idea of um, exploring the influence of that concept of professionalism. So we talk about professional standards as though that's one thing but they look different in different places and indeed They are used differently. Here in Scotland we are very fond of the idea of professionalism, it has been used as a lever, a persuasive concept or indeed a panacea and just not long after the publication of the Donaldson Report I did a bit of analysis with my colleague Robert Doherty from the University of Glasgow where we looked at this idea of professionalism and indeed partnership, two ideas that were really central to the Donaldson Report. And we looked at these as panaceas for teacher education. And what came out of that critical discourse analysis was really the idea that every time the word professionalism was used in the policy document, the the Donaldson Report itself, that we could actually replace it with another word, that might make um, more sense or more more obvious sense. So for example, very often the word teaching would have been a more adequate and simpler word to use than professionalism. So it, it brings us to think about the impact of policy discourse, not just wider discourse, but also the terminology that's used in policy and the importance of analyzing this so that we can reveal hegemonic power. So I've long been interested in how teachers are positioned within these discourses on on teacher education and and teachers work. And in particular, I've been influenced by the work of Judith Sachs and her um, distinction between managerial versus democratic perspectives on professionalism managerial professionalism being um, concerned with neoliberal ideas around effectiveness efficiency and um, externally imposed accountability and compliance policy compliance and on the other hand democratic professionalism having roots in social justice being about making teachers work public about teachers being accountable to those that they work with rather than having to account to externally um, imposed bodies that maybe don't have the same value sets as teachers themselves. And Sachs talks about the activist teaching profession, where professional activism is about being active. It is about adopting an active orientation that is very explicitly um, value-based. It's about advocacy. It's about teachers not arguing that they should maintain a neutral stance, but they should be advocating for the the young people that they work with and the families and communities in which they work. rather than being what um, Trevor Gale and Catherine Densmore call um, teachers trying to maintain neutrality, they argue that this is positioning teachers as state functionaries. And I have to say that every um, te- initial teacher education student I've ever worked with if i have asked them, did you come into this to be a state functionary? I think unequivocally the answer would be no, certainly in Scotland. But there are objections sometimes to this, um, what is sometimes argued to be a politically motivated um, view of teaching and and teachers. And while maybe superficially, the democratic perspective on professionalism might appear to be more politically motivated, I would draw on the words of Michael Apple, something that I do very often, who argues that the institutionalization of efficiency as a dominant bureaucratic norm is not a neutral technical matter. It is profoundly an instance of cultural power relations. So the status quo is absolutely not neutral. And I've been interested not just in how this all plays out, these issues of power and discourse and teacher education policy and pedagogy. I'm interested not just in how it pertains in initial teacher education, but also how it relates to ongoing professional learning and development. And indeed my own PhD um, focused on this. And my most highly cited article did come from a, a literature review chapter in my PhD which was a section where I was looking at literature on what was normally at that point called CPD, Continuing Professional Development. The discourse has changed now, probably more likely to focus on professional learning. Or in Scotland, it's very often called career-long professional learning. But in that chapter, I was looking at what literature existed and much of what existed was accounts of CPD. So things that had happened in schools or in groups of schools or in universities or in perhaps state districts. There was almost nothing at that point that really brought these different approaches to CPD together and sought to theorize them. I mean, speaking now in 2021, that is not the case. There is there is a lot of really good work out there, but what I found was when I looked at the literature that was there and looked across these various different approaches to CPD, that they could be placed along a spectrum from transmissive on the one end to transformative at the other. So, transmissive CPD being the the kind of classic um, I stand at the front of the class, tell you how to do it, and you've then been filled with information, and you can take that away and use it. To the other end, transformative, which is much more about um, professional learning that's motivated by the teacher's own context, that uh, takes place over time, that It changes how they understand and see the world and the teaching world and the young people in it, and that most often is not an individual pursuit. So I'm not making the assumption that transformative um, professional learning is the only uh, way to learn professionally, but I am making the assumption that it is desirable. That said there is a place for transmissive learning. So I began to play around with these ideas um, in my PhD and beyond, and later on became a bit more familiar with the writing about transformative learning theory, particularly um, from Jack Mesero and, and Ted Fleming, etc. And I very much align with this, the idea that transformative learning changes one's meaning making perspectives. So if we're okay about signing up to that, what we're saying is that changes in our thinking and our outlook and our perspectives is positive. And that knowledge is always tentative and experience is always contingent on context and I suspect. Most people would not find these premises problematic, but when we look at how learning is organized and particularly teacher learning, then often there is a, a nod to this idea that we might have set sets of knowledge or ways of learning. The My interest in teacher education quality um, has led to involvement in a project that I'm really excited about that's been uh, ongoing since 2017, and that involves colleagues from across all 11 institutions of teacher education in Scotland. And that is the Measuring Quality in Initial Teacher Education Project, or MQUITE, as we call it. And this is particularly interesting I think, well, I think it's interesting, obviously, (laughs) but I think it's interesting when we look at this set within the global context. So generally, if we were to measure the quality of teacher education, if we were to look to the literature for answers on that, we'd be finding a lot of literature that advocated what might be termed a value-added approach, something that's particularly popular or common, in many US states, for example, which correlates teachers um, or the pupils. So, sorry, I'm not making this clear. Let me start again. So the value added approach would take me as a teacher. It would measure me by looking at my students' outcomes on standardized tests. And that would then give a a rating as to how good a teacher I am or was. And while there are advocates of this approach, particularly those that are fixated by um, pupil attainment on standardized tests as the marker of desirable outcomes of teacher or teaching, sorry, this approach undoubtedly has unintended consequences. And really importantly, from where I stand, is that these unintended consequences arguably impact negatively on the children and young people that are already underserved by public education. So we were delighted when the Scottish Government recognised that if we were going to measure or identify quality in teacher education, we really needed a context appropriate approach to this, and that has formed or did form the first part of the InQuite project where we looked at how we might create a framework that would help us to identify quality in ITE. And this has garnered a lot of interest globally, because it's something that many, I would say all teacher educators actually that I have so far spoken to about this would be really keen in their own contexts to to have teacher education measured, identified, assessed in a context appropriate way. So when I say context appropriate, I mean that aligns with the the values that underpin the education system in that country or, or state. So for us in Scotland, measuring and reporting is at system level. So we're not looking at individual courses or individual institutions. And we're we're looking at Scottish teacher education as a whole, but we can do this in Scotland because we're acknowledging that ITE in Scotland is relatively homogeneous in nature across programs and institutions. And that for us in Scotland, professional governance is um, well established through General Teaching Council for Scotland and influenced by fairly strong unionization of the teaching workforce. So these have served to maintain stability or some might argue conservatism. And I was particularly excited um, around 2015, 16, when the Scottish government encouraged initial teacher education providers to develop what they called new and innovative routes. And these were primarily to address a number of challenges that government had identified around um, recruitment, but also around um, wider issues, such as a diversity in the teaching profession. And to me and to many of my colleagues, this was a really welcome opportunity. But I think it's fair to say that tight governance and a fairly centralised approach, for example, to um, placements in schools really has made innovation a challenge. I would love to talk a bit more about my own involvement in um, one of these responses to the the call for new and innovative uh, ITE programmes but I think um, for the purpose of time, I'm not going to do that today. What I'm going to do is just finish um, by talking a bit about where we're at now in the School of Education and what my my current work is focusing on. So what I've already spoken about is probably a little bit of a tour of some interesting work that I've been involved in in the past. What I'm currently involved in in the School of Education here at Strathclyde is developing our vision for teacher education, a unique and overtly Strathclyde approach to teacher education. And what we're developing is a strategy, a vision, a manifesto for socially progressive teacher education. And this sits perfectly within this university, because our university does commit to, in fact, it doesn't just commit, sorry, it has a relentless commitment to pursuing a globally, socially progressive vision. So we have that overall university vision. Within our school, we have an overarching mission to make a difference for the better in people's lives through education in its widest sense. And this isn't a new vision, it may be relatively newly articulated, but actually if we look right back to our legacy as a a teacher education provider, if we look back to David Stowe, um, he developed and established the first ever teacher education institution in the UK, which was founded in Glasgow in 1837. And prior to the development of this teacher education institution, he had opened schools for infants, something that was unheard of at that time, public schools for infants, where he supported his teachers to engage in what we would now call play pedagogy and outdoor learning. And he then started training, as it might have been called then, rather than educating teachers, to work with this pretty innovative way of engaging with students, a very child-centered way. So all of the elements that would support us as a school to move ahead with socially progressive teacher education are there in terms of both our past and our future. And for me, socially progressive teacher education absolutely fits that aspiration that teaching is for a better world, or we can teach for a better world. So our vision is optimistic rather than deterministic. And just very briefly, our vision for socially progressive teacher education draws on a number of key areas of thoughts. Thought, actually it draws on not a number, it draws on three um, key key sets of ideas. The first is social progressivism as a a political ideology where we're looking at social reform for the good of society at large, rather than the few. Rejecting appeals to tradition or status quo um, as a baseline position, whilst not rejecting that tradition has value. And accepting that society should progress as new knowledge becomes available. So linking back to ideas around transformative learning that we should be open to and actively seeking to adapt our own beliefs and attitudes in light of new knowledge. So that's one element. The second element is pedagogical progressivism as an educational movement. So ideas such as um, learner-centered approaches, um, emphasis on discovery and problem-based learning, a, valuing both really secure disciplinary knowledge, but also supporting learners to draw on interdisciplinary ways of learning. And the final, the third element of this vision is the idea of social and environmental justice as ethical imperatives and putting these front and central and arguing that, um, well, actually not just arguing, we're doing, we aspire to um, not just have social justice in our uh, written names, but to actively commit to engaging in discussion that builds our conceptual understanding of what social and environmental justice means. Thinking about how that will permeate our work rather than um, appear as discrete specialist teaching and acknowledging as teacher educators that our social justice knowledge and practice is as important as teaching our student teachers. And all of this very much um, is about connection with context. It's about um, place-based learning approaches, for example. So this is work in progress. And just in, um, I suppose, in drawing to a close, I want to finish with the words of a couple of uh, people who I find very influential and whose words I think might do a better job of summing up some of the the key motivations in my work. And one of them is um, Michael Apple, who very much for me helps to understand why teaching for a better world is absolutely not something that we can just um, leave to chance. So he says, schools do not only control people, they also help control meaning. Since they preserve and distribute what is perceived to be legitimate knowledge, the knowledge that we all must have, schools confer cultural legitimacy on the knowledge of specific groups. And for me, these words help to illustrate why status quo is not the safe option because sometimes we're told that innovation and new ideas are dangerous that we're experimenting on children. Actually, I would argue based on some of that work from Michael Apple and others, that status quo is potentially more dangerous. But I want to finish with the words of Bell Hooks in her incredibly influential book with an amazing title, Teaching to Transgress, Education as the Practice of Freedom. And in this, she says, to be changed by ideas was pure pleasure, but to learn ideas that ran counter to values and beliefs learned at home was to place oneself at risk to enter the danger zone. Home was a place where I was forced to conform to someone else's image of who and what I should be. School was a place where I could forget that self and through ideas reinvent myself, school. And I want to finish there because I just think it beautifully illustrates how powerful schools are, are the school experience and therefore how powerful and important teachers and teacher education are and that together we can teach for a better world.
0: Thanks very much, thank you Eileen that was that was wonderful. Um, As ever with these mini lectures I've always got lots of questions I've been scribbling frantically as you've been talking and obviously we don't have time to address them all well we don't have time to address them all during the podcast um, I'm sure I'll pick them up with you later. but for now let's let's, um, let's have a go at a couple of these uh, questions. The idea of the status quo came up several times in your presentation. the idea that the status quo isn't neutral. And I'm inclined to agree with that. And I wonder what advice you would give to students or practicing teachers? Who often find themselves in that neoliberal accountability culture um, that you described um, as managerial, or that Sachs described as managerial? What, what, what do they do? How do they find their voices? And then how do they exert their voices? Or how do teacher educators enable those voices?
1: So I wish I had an easy answer to that, but, but I don't. But I think one of the things that is incumbent upon teacher educators is to acknowledge the, the discomfort that student teachers and early career teachers in particular, but not exclusively, can feel when they're in a context in a school or in university where their own beliefs and views do not align easily with what's happening or what they've been asked to do. And I think realistically, we cannot change that in one big grand act. Mm -hmm. I I think the idea of small acts of resistance is something that's powerful because it's achievable. I -hmm. think it's easy to become overwhelmed. So I think actually opening this up to this dilemma, up and making it explicit and having discussion is probably the first and most important step.
0: Mm. I, I think that's. I like the idea of um, discomfort. Actually, um, that I, th- I think that a very interesting concept. And I suppose we're lucky in Scotland in our standards where dialogue is is written into th- to the standards. Although I, I'm not I'm not sure how often that is actualized which leads me I suppose to my second question around the framework that you've created or that you're in the process of working on this framework to identify quality could you say a wee bit more about that because I think people would be particularly interested to, to, to hear what sits on that framework.
1: So if people are interested in finding about finding out a bit more they can look on the mquite website which is mquite n-q-u-i-t-e dot scot and the whole framework's there but essentially what we were doing it drew on uh, an extensive literature review where we were looking at how other people might measure or identify quality and we also then um, went through a process that we've called scotifying so we looked at our context and tried to Mm. think about how we would use these measures but in summary the the approach is that lots of different ways of measuring or looking at um, what happens are valid but none of these on their own can ever tell us the full picture so it our Attempts were to bring together a range of different ways that might reveal different things about what's happening in teacher education rather than to to do something that would give a measurement of, you know, a number or
0: a rating, for example. Mm. And I suppose it links, I suppose, to the idea of the transformative professional learning, then that you're talking about. And the way I understand it from what you said is that the learning itself is transformative like the actual approaches to learning should be transformative. But ultimately, the the goal is to transform practice, assuming, of course, that the practice needs to be transformed in the first place.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I would want to make really clear that I don't think everything needs to be changed. So the pursuit of transformative learning It's not always about changing things. It may actually just be about changing one's perspective on how we understand what's happening. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that, for me, it is about the critical and intellectual engagement with one's practice and the idea that neither practice nor theoretical understanding are sufficient on their own and nor should they exist on their
0: own. And I think I want to ask you then a final question, um, more of a personal question, I suppose, when you referred to Bell Hooks at the end and teaching mm-hmm. to try trans- transgress, and you talked about schools should be places where you learn ideas that have helped you to transgress. What, what have you learned in school or while working in schools of education that's helped you to transgress?
1: Oh, so much that I need more than another podcast to do this. I think I've learned that the less I try to tie down for students and the more I'm open to learning with them, the more we all benefit. And, I mean, I can not think of particular examples with particular students where they've really given me a rigorous intellectual grilling mm-hmm. on the basis of having done much more in-depth reading and thinking than I have. And what I've learned is that that doesn't make me a bad teacher. Actually, I think it makes me a better teacher. I used to think I had to know everything. I now know I know very little of what's out there to be known, but I think I do know um, how to engage in learning dialogue with colleagues, with junior and more senior colleagues that is productive for both of us. So, yeah, probably the being brave and being um, confident enough not to have everything scripted, as is maybe evident in listening to this podcast.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much, Eileen. I think that's a nice lesson for us all, and and it's a good place to stop so thank you very much to you and thanks very much to everyone who's listening my pleasure thank you thank you for listening in to our Strathclyde education podcast series we'll be back soon with another episode